Welcome to Sense and Sensibility, the Inflation Guy podcast. I am Michael Ashton. I am the Inflation Guy, and I am your host. And today we're going to do something a little bit different. We're going to open up the mailbag and answer a couple of uh, listener questions. But before we do that, um, I just want to ask, uh, I'd just like you to do something for me, um, if you would. What I'd really appreciate is if you would tell somebody about this podcast. If you like this podcast, and if you don't, you probably wouldn't be listening. But if you do like this podcast, I'd appreciate you telling somebody about it. Uh, the podcast is free. And and the goal I have in producing this podcast is, is to help listeners defend your money. And I always sign off every every episode with that tagline, defend your money. And, and so I hope we can do that. And in fact, you know, obviously the reason I'm doing this is that I hope that uh, some people will ask us to help them defend their money. And maybe, maybe uh, you're a business owner um, and you have some sort of inflation leakage in your business. You know, inflation impacts product pricing decisions, input costs, competitive position, employee compensation, almost everything you do, almost any decision you make as a business owner involves an interaction with inflation that it didn't two years ago. And that's something that we do on a consulting basis is we we help, we act as inflation plumbers. I act as an inflation plumber and, and help people find those leaks. Or, or maybe you want our help in defending your money directly and helping you to manage your money. We have sort of some unique approaches, things that are a little bit different from the way other people do things. Obviously, I think about things differently from the way other people think about them. And so perhaps uh, somebody who's out there listening could use a little bit of help is thinking maybe your current investment management firm uh, doesn't really think about inflation the right way, or maybe they've been saying it's nothing to worry about um, as you watch your money get eaten away by inflation. Um, if so, and you want to entertain the idea of having a different investment management firm, maybe you you go to EnduringInvestments.com and and uh, initiate a conversation. But but that's that's not what I'm asking today. All I'm asking from you is that you tell somebody about this podcast, because even if you are not directly interested in engaging us in a commercial kind of way, that's fine. It's still a free podcast, um, but I'd like you to, to help spread the word and, and, and help us find those people who, who do feel like a commercial relationship uh, with some folks who think a little bit differently is, is worthwhile. So that's the uh, that's the the advertisement for today. Now let's get on to opening the mailbag. Thanks, mailbox. We just got a letter. 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 Wonder who it's from. Ah yes, thank you, Steve. Thank you. That's Steve from Blues Clues, ladies and gentlemen. Opening our mailbox today. Let's see. Uh, we've got a couple of questions about, hey, who would have thought monetary policy in the Federal Reserve? Here's the first question. Is it true that when the Fed aims to reduce inflation by increasing the federal funds rate, the Fed is assuming that banks will lend less money 
and that the money multiplier works as an inverse function? Um, that's a very good question because it shows actually that you're thinking about how, <laughs> how money will respond to changes in interest rates in the federal funds rate. But that's not exact, that's not in fact why the Fed raises interest rates. Um, the Fed is not trying to manipulate the money supply. Um, the Fed doesn't think the money supply is, is all that important. Um, there are some within the Fed who still do, but there aren't very many. And so the main reason that the Federal Reserve increases interest rates, and, and you, can, you can hear them talk about it, they describe it in, in very clear terms, that, that when they raise interest rates, they expect economic activity to slow. Um, directly because higher interest rates means fewer people uh, are able to qualify for mortgages, so they buy fewer houses, so there's fewer houses being built, fewer people buying cars, um, uh, fewer people you know, building spec houses, or less expansion of business by raising the cost of capital, and so on and so forth. And that's the mechanism. It's really a Keynesian mechanism that the Federal Reserve believes that interest rate policy operates through. And you can hear them because they'll, they'll talk about, um, you know, the, this, this, the, the, the delay between hiking rates and, ha and its effect on the economy. And they talk about it in terms of the effect on, on growth. Um, you know, they expect to see the unemployment rate go up. Um, and that's why they're raising interest rates. Well, if you were focusing on money when you raise interest rates, then you wouldn't really expect to see any effect on, on the unemployment rate. Um, changing the quantity of money doesn't necessarily affect any real variables at all. It just affects the, the measurement stick that you're measuring all the real variables with. And so, so it's a good question, but that's not, in fact, the way the Federal Reserve um, looks at these things. And, and by the way, while we're talking about this, there was a very interesting speech yesterday um, by St. Louis Fed President Bullard. And, um, and I mentioned this because Bullard is a, he's an interesting guy and he often has very interesting speeches and he's, he tries to be a firebrand and tries to always be on the outlier. Um, and, um, and no one ever kind of asked him about what he said last year or anything like that. But he gave a speech yesterday that really affected markets pretty pretty harshly. Uh, and he was talking about the ultimate, where do interest rates have to go to in this cycle? And he kind of went through this, this um, exercise with uh, something called the Taylor Rule. And the Taylor Rule is, is a formula that was first proposed by economist John Taylor in the early 90s. And uh, and it's basically just sort of a, a rule of thumb that says you should set interest rates, the Fed should set interest rates um, based on two variables. You know, the Fed is supposed to target uh, maximum economic growth uh, and, uh, and minimum inflation. And so he said, well, let's set up an, an equation that says that, that the interest rate that we should set, um, where we should set policy should be tied to how far inflation is from our target inflation and how far is uh, the is unemployment, how, how far is the output gap from what we want, you know, from full employment. And based on those answers, then you, you take sort of the neutral Fed funds rate and you add or subtract to it. That tells you where Fed funds should be, should be set. 
Um, so anyway, so Bullard goes through this exercise and says that, well, you know, interest rates, depending on which measures of inflation and unemployment, whatever you use, um, mostly inflation because we kind of seem to be at full employment, so that term goes away. But depending on which definition of inflation you use, uh, rates should go to five and a quarter to seven percent. And markets didn't react very well to that because seven percent is not what anyone is looking for. Now, of course, Bullard is speaking entirely hypothetically. The Fed hasn't used the Taylor rule for decades, um, at least at least uh, at least fifteen years. It has not been, um, you know, it's it's an interesting academic exercise, but it's not the way that that policy gets set. But but the rule gives you sort of an eye. At least an indication that one of the the things that goes into setting monetary policy when it comes to the interest rate, if you think interest rates matter, um, is is how that interest rate affects output relative to the output gap. Anyway, doesn't work that way, but that's um, uh, so there. That's that answers that that question when the Fed. Um, is is raising interest rates to reduce inflation. They believe it's happening by slowing the economy, by introducing an output gap. Uh, here's another question. Let's see, another question. Why doesn't the Fed more aggressively sell down its bond portfolio, shrink its balance sheet, to reduce M2 and thus inflation? Is there any evidence that any recent decrease or constraint in M2 has caused financial market disruption? Is that the Fed's worry? And it kind of goes back to the same answer, which is the Fed doesn't care about money supply. Um, th that's not entirely true. They care about uh, market liquidity. They care, they care about the, the smooth functioning of markets. And part of what they thought they learned in the global financial crisis was that, hey, we need to have way more liquidity out there than the minimum needed to conduct business, to conduct you know, finance, to, to have markets trade cleanly because you know, if you're operating on that margin and something goes wrong, all of a sudden there's no liquidity, markets crash. Um, and, and so that's what they thought they learned. And so they have you know, added way more money. They added massively more reserves than banks need, which is why I have said on this program a number of times, banks are no longer reserve constrained. And as a consequence of that, they can lend as much money as they want constrained only by their capital, which means that the Fed no longer really directly controls in any meaningful way the money supply. Um, and so um, certainly in any kind of direct way that they can control. Um, so uh, why doesn't the Fed more aggressively shrink its bond portfolio and more aggressively shrink its balance sheet? Um, and the answer is, yeah, they're they're concerned. But when they have tried this in the past, um, you know, there was uh, there have been taper tantrums. There have been episodes in financial markets that were very unpleasant, and the Fed, rightly or wrongly, I think wrongly, tied the the reaction in the markets not to investors throwing camp tantrums and deciding that they really wanted lower interest rates, not higher interest rates, but the Fed tied those market reactions to a lack of liquidity. There just wasn't enough money around to support asset prices. Again, it, it's, it's really, it's a, it's a strange uh, concept, 
Um, clearly, there's some relation between the quantity of money of, in the system and the level, the nominal level of, well, nominal level of any price, but but the nominal level of financial prices. Those are clearly related concepts, but it, it really isn't that there isn't enough money to go around and people can't, you know, make bids and offers. I mean, there's many things that are much more direct in terms of affecting the liquidity in the system. For example, um, the Volcker rule, which, which, which again, followed the global financial crisis, the Volcker rule limits how much uh, banks and dealers can can deploy, really banks, I guess, can deploy proprietary capital to to hold positions rather than just to disintermediate buyers and sellers. Um, so they can't take as many prop positions. And the consequence of that is that when all of a sudden everybody is leaning one way, it used to be that banks or um, uh, specialists on the New York Stock Exchange or whatever, the guys in the middle put their own capital at risk. And back before they were public banks, you know, it was the J.P. Morgans of the world with their own personal capital or the, the brothers Lehman, um, the, you know, the, the partners of Goldman Sachs, put their actual money, their own personal money at risk to buy when everyone was selling and sell when everyone was buying because it was in their own personal interest to calm everything down, right? But also it made sense that if everybody is selling and and prices are at a distressed level they're 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 just wrong they're too low then the guys who are at the center of it all and have money to put to use should be very happy to go put it to use and lean the other way and hold the positions until such time as markets calm down and they can lay it off in the other direction now this can't happen anymore to that degree for a couple of reasons. One of them is the Volcker rule that that limits exactly how much banks can do. Um, and another is the amount of leverage that, that banks and proprietary um, accounts are allowed to have. And so, and, and for that matter, that the amount of leverage they choose to have, uh, which means that, you know, you can go and buy when everyone else is selling except that if they keep selling and the market keeps going down, then suddenly you're out of business. And so, and so you, you can't just sort of stand there, draw a line in the sand unless you're totally unlevered and, and you don't care how long it takes for prices to get back. So in, in a levered world, which by the way is caused by more money in the system, not less money in the system, a more levered world is less, uh, is, is more volatile it maybe is more liquid in sort of a quantitative sense that there's more liquidity, but it is more uncertain in that it induces more leverage, which induces less certainty. Uh, so, long answer, but the reason that the Fed does not more aggressively sell down its bond portfolio is A, they don't really think that they need to because they're not trying to shrink the money supply um, and they think they have roughly the right amount of reserves. Um, and two, they don't, you know, in the past when they've done it, markets didn't react well. And so why be aggressive? Um, there's another, there's sort of another related question here that was um, about central banks increasing purchases of gold. And the question was whether or not is that a, a means of, of uh, 
uh, absorbing M2, um, causing M2 to shrink? Um, and the answer to that is is actually very directly no, because when when you buy something, when a, a central bank buys something like gold or bonds or anything like that, um, they're buying it and they're putting money into the system. Um, when the Fed increases its balance sheet, when they buy bonds or when they buy gold or when they buy cars or anything else, they're buying it with money that they're creating out of thin air, and that puts money into the system. So if the, if the Federal Reserve or any central bank wanted to shrink the money supply, they would sell gold from their portfolio and, uh, and take in money, which they would then burn. Um, so it actually would work in the opposite direction. Um, okay, here's a, a very uh, a very interesting question, um, and there's a lot more behind the answer to this than than the question suggests. I think when the Fed increases M2, I love all the questions about M2. By the way, it, it's very exciting to me that people are listening and care about the money supply. Um, it, it, I guess it's important that somebody cares about the money supply. When the Fed increases M2, it degrades the value of money and thus robs us all. Um, or at least recently in the U.S., we were robbed to the extent that we had not equally benefited from the government's recent largesse. Now, here's the interesting part of the question. If all dollars created by the Fed were distributed as largesse, would we all be made whole? Or is there a risk that as inflation takes hold, its degradation of value is larger than the largesse that was monetized? Um, uh, and the, the question goes on. Um, it's a really interesting thought experiment. Let's suppose that the Federal Reserve decided to double the money supply. Oh, hell, let's say they decided to, let's make it easy. They decided to increase the money supply 10x. But the way they did it is they simply said, and they really couldn't do this, the Treasury would have to do this, but bear with me. They simply said, we're going to add a zero to all currency balances, uh, to all, um, you know, every, every bit of wealth you have, every, every financial asset, every, every dollar in the bank. Um, hell, let's just say the dollars in the bank. We're just going to add a zero to all the currency. Then what would happen? Would we all be worse off because we'd have much higher inflation? Would we be better off because we all have 10 times as much money? Well, the theory says that you'd be exactly the same amount. Uh, you'd be in exactly the same position. You'd have 10 times as many dollars worth one-tenth as much, and you should be indifferent to that. Um, the price level would be 10 times higher. Uh, and so if you know every $1 bill in your pocket suddenly became a $10 bill, um, but a movie went from costing $15 to $150, it doesn't make any difference to you, right? And so, you know, the, the only question there is, um, so anyway, so that's, that's the, the basic idea is that, um, that, yes, if you distribute the money equally, you should be totally indifferent, assuming that the price level, in fact, adjusts. If the price level does not adjust, then you're going to have winners and losers. Um, anyone who's selling something is, you know, is going to be a loser because they're selling it at, a, at they're getting fewer resources back than they should at the new price level. Um, and uh, and there's, there's some evidence that that's part of what happens when you have inflation. It's called money illusion. And people feel like they have more money um, 
because the price level, you know, they have more, they have more dollars, but the price level has gone up. And so they don't, but people respond to the amount of money in their pocket, not the amount of money divided by the price level. So they don't, people don't tend to respond to the real amount of money um, or real interest rates or real variables. They tend to respond to nominal variables, which screws everything up. There's sort of a bigger uh, point here that's sort of interesting, too. If the Federal Reserve, when they create the money, they spread it out to everybody, then fine, we're all indifferent. If instead, when they create the money, they send it to the government to spend, which is effectively what happens when they buy government bonds, then, then that makes all of us poorer because all of the dollars in our pocket have all been, um, you know, are now worth one-tenth as much and somebody else has the money. Um, that is effectively a tax. Um, and in fact, uh, it's, you know, if the Federal Reserve were to uh, essentially buy all the bonds that were being created, okay, the bonds have to be sold because the government runs a deficit, so they have to borrow the money. If instead of borrowing the money, they printed the money, okay, the net effect is exactly the same. Well, it fall, it's distributed differently, but the net effect is exactly the same as if you had taxed everybody. So there's two ways to balance the budget. Okay, one is you go and you tax everybody. Well, three ways you could spend less, but let's suppose if you if you if you have the spending the same, then you can tax everybody, and take the money and run a balanced budget, or you can print the money, and have a balanced budget. Okay, but the net result ends up being the same, other than it falls on different people. When you have inflation, you're taxing the poorest people. When you are running a progressive income tax, you're taxing the wealthiest people. Um, and so, but the net effect, if you're going to have, Friedman explains this a lot better than I do, but if you're going to end up having no deficit, uh, one of those two ways, no practical, no actual deficit because you taxed or no practical deficit because the amount of the deficit was funded by, you know, by funny money, the, the, the net effect on society as a whole is the same. It's taxation, which of course then raises another interesting question, not in the mail at all, which is, and this is probably a, this is probably a whole, a whole episode on this, uh, up ahead. If, in fact, the Federal Reserve can effectively tax us, um, then why don't they get elected? I mean, that's, no, that's taxation without representation, right? I suppose indirectly, you know, we, we uh, elect representatives. We elect a president who appoints Federal Reserve, uh, appoints members to the Federal Reserve who are then um, confirmed by the Senate. So I guess indirectly we are represented in that argument, um, but um, but you could you could make an argument that that people in the with the amount of power over over really direct directly taxing us in a very uh, in a very uh, uh, direct way I guess um, that they should be more directly responsible uh, responsible and responsive to 
to the population? I don't know. I'm not sure what the right answer to that is. Probably the answer is that you don't want to have people directly vote for Federal Reserve chairman because then you'd always vote for the, everyone would vote for the MMT guy and, uh, and we'd probably get really bad policy in the same way that directly voting for Congress and, and the president has not necessarily resulted in the, the best possible governance. Um, but I'm starting to digress away from sort of an economics and monetarism and Federal Reserve podcast. I'm starting to, to morph here into a political podcast. And I don't really want to do that. Um, but, uh, but I do think I'm, um, I think I'm going to stop with just those, those questions from the mailbag. Those are really good questions. Um, there are certainly some things that I've also gotten in the mail that could be entire episodes and will be entire episodes on their own. Actually, one of them I'll tease a little bit. It's probably my next podcast. Um, people have been asking this for a long time and I'm glad I waited to really talk about it, but um, Bitcoin and inflation, cryptocurrency and inflation. What's the relationship? Is cryptocurrency a good inflation hedge? Well, I think that um, given the uh, what's happened to to crypto really this entire year, but especially over the last week or two, I think we have a a, uh, a very a very direct answer about whether or not Bitcoin is a good inflation hedge. The answer is no. Um, but why it isn't and, and what is cryptocurrency really? You know, what is it good for? Um, is it currency? <laughs> is, it, is it an asset? Is it a trading asset? Is it a store of value? Um, is it a medium of exchange? All those questions are very, very interesting. And I think we can easily talk for 20 or 30 minutes on that. So, uh, so but that's all we're going to talk about today. That's all for today's podcast, completely out of the mailbag. Um, I'm going to say it. You can contact me, um, inflationguy and enduringinvestments.com, if you want to contribute more to that mailbag, and maybe we'll, un- we'll unwrap some more of those in, on future episodes. Um, you can follow the blog at inflationguy.blog. Um, you can follow me on Twitter at inflation underscore guy. Don't do as much of there right now as I used to, but... You can, you can do that. Um, visit Enduring Investments, EnduringInvestments.com, and most importantly, defend your money. Defend your money. And if inflation is coming for you, remember, you know a guy. <laughs>